Hello, you're listening to Knight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. I'm Holly Baker, and I'll be your host for this episode of Knight's History Cast. Dr. Robert Casanello talked with Dr. Eric Rutko in the fall of 2020. Dr. Rutko is a UCF history professor and the author of The Longest Line on the Map, The United States, The Pan-American Highway, and The Quest to Link the Americas. Have a listen to their conversation. Eric, thank you for joining me today. Could you tell uh, the audience a little bit about yourself before we get started? Sure, sure. It'd be a pleasure. Let me first say thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a real treat. So I started out uh, my career in law. I was largely practicing environmental law. This is now about 15 years ago. And I gradually transitioned to history over the course of a number of different years. I started writing history before I enrolled in a PhD. So it was a multi-year, almost a decade-long process. My first book of history, American Canopy Trees, Forests, and the Making of a Nation, came out in 2012. I'd started that before I'd entered into grad school. It came out at the end of my second year of my PhD My second book, which is the one that we'll be talking about today, The Longest Line on the Map, was originally my PhD dissertation, and then it became my second book, and that came out in 2019, and now I'm in the midst of another project that flows in a lot of ways off the second book and certain things I learned about it that's dealing with tourism. Great. So just to give everyone listening the the full title of your book, it is The Longest Line on the Map, the United States, the Pan-American Highway, and the Quest to Link the Americas. And I think for me, the Quest to Link the Americas, I think, is really what you're getting at here. So let's let's talk a a little bit about this. And um, again, for, for listeners who may not be familiar, can you give us a brief description of the book? Sure. The book in the simplest way you can think of it as a history of inter-American relations told through a highway. But once you start reading, you'll learn that the highway, the Pan-American highway, which exists today, you can drive on it, was the second manifestation of a quest to link the Americas. It began as a railway project, first called the Intercontinental Railway and later the Pan-American Railway. There was almost zero scholarship that's ever come out on this. There's one article from 1950 was the only dedicated article on it. My book goes into much greater depth because one of the things that no one knows is that the railway wasn't just an idea, that you could actually travel by rail in the US as far to El Salvador at one point in time. El Salvador, Honduras, that border, which is almost 2000 miles from the US border. What a lot of people don't know is that the amount of track built south from the US, going south from Texas, largely being done by U.S. corporations is actually longer than the original transcontinental lines. So that's how big that was. So the book first looks at this initial wave of trying to connect North and South America overland, this quest to link the Americas, beginning with the start of it, which is really right after the Civil War. The book begins in 1866. The main narrative carries that through. That's an active project deep into the 1920s. And then there's a transition, which with the emergence of road building and the expansion in America from a federal system contained within the U.S. to going international, the Pan-American Highway is the first step. It's the internationalization of American road building. So the highway is the set, it's the intersection of Pan-Americanism as an ideology and road building as an American passion. And you see those two come together. We follow that story 
from its inception when the U.S. initiates this idea of building interest and then it becomes the United States' largest foreign development project in the interwar years. So after the Panama Canal, constructing the Pan American Highway in Central America and Panama is the U.S.'s next largest foreign development project. It becomes the longest one. It lasts for over three decades. And the book closes looking at why the, why the highway isn't completed, because after the U.S. working with Central America and Panama gets a road all the way open to Panama City. This is in the early 1960s. Kennedy's the president when it happens. Ultimately, there's still 60 miles left, the famous Darien Gap, which is where Panama and Colombia meet. So the book starts out by asking, how does this quest get underway? How does this road get constructed? And then why does this quest come up short? And that's what the last chapter focuses on. One of the things I found interesting, um, and I'm not sure if this was intentional, so I'd like you to, to kind of talk about, about this, is that the number of reviewers who looked at your work has a transnational history. Um, and it's kind of interesting because for it to be a transnational history, you'd have to take as much care in the American side of the road construction as in the Latin American side of the road construction. So was the transnational approach, if it is a transnational approach, was it intentional? Did, you, did it come to you happenstance? The short answer is very intentional. So when I had started my PhD and this was in 2010, the idea of the transnational turn was sort of at its height, a lot of interest in transnational perspectives reshaping the way that we think about the past. And I was certainly influenced by that as well. I had been interested originally in looking at environmental extraction projects tied to US corporations in the early 20th century. So the signal example of that might be copper in Chile, the Chugi Kamata copper mine. I'd been living in Latin America before I started grad school. I'd visited a bunch of these mega sites, historical sites, places you don't think about of having U.S. capital involved early on. I was very interested in that. I ran into a problem of sourcing. Corporate sourcing is much trickier. And I had stumbled in a book that was not a very big book at the time, what was a footnote talking about that the U.S. government funding and constructing the highway, part of the Pan American Highway in Central America and Panama was this massive project in the inner warriors. I couldn't find anything about it. And I was so intrigued because the role of the government and the way this is one road passing through six countries as a coherent foreign policy project for the U.S. opened up this true transnational perspective with documents. The involvement of the U.S. government made me confident that there would be a document base I could rely on to get inside of this. How does the transnational angle change things? So it was right at the center from the beginning. And my initial research focus was on these interwar years. It was as I started researching, I realized this story is even bigger. And so I had to start pushing it back in time to get the railway side and pushing it forward in time to get the Darien Gap side as well. But the kernel of it very much started out with transnational history and the interwar years. So of course, this brings us to, to the documents, right? Because in order to do a transnational history, you, you've got to master more than one language. So um, I'm assuming Spanish language sources were something you relied on. I know you had told me um, that you had also used oral histories. You conducted some in, fo in a foreign language. And so tell me a little bit about that. And of course, add on to this, the idea that you're writing really a, a, a foreign relations history, right? And, and I think there's been this tradition of foreign relations history that was 
um, wedded to a U.S. perspective, U.S. sources. And of course, you're doing something much different. So can you talk a little bit about how you're adding to that idea as well? And this is one of the central challenges whenever you're doing foreign relations, which is are you trying to kind of find some balanced view between the two or more countries you're looking at, or are you trying to deal with one side? I would say that if you look at the subtitle, right, I have it right there, the United States and the quest to link the Americas. So I do see it as focusing primarily on what's going on with the United States, but at the same time, I didn't think you could get near this story without using both Spanish language sources and oral histories. There were a number of reasons for that. When you think about timing wise, so the center of this story, we have the US authorizing funds, engineers on the ground, deeply involved from the mid thirties through the sixties. Some of those years are still recent enough that we had people alive that have direct experience. So part of this was the story was recent enough on the ground that I felt that if I could go, particularly Costa Rica, where a lot of this was centered because the construction was so challenging. The head of the Bureau of Federal Roads in the United States called it the toughest road building that the U.S. had attempted anywhere in the world. So to just find out what could happen, I was looking for actual people involved. I was successful in that. The second issue was that question of why isn't Daring, why is the road not complete? Why does the Daring gap still exist? That made me go down to Panama, both in Panama City and in the Darien Gap itself. So I had to conduct research there. And, and for that, because it's still pushing right up into the present, I followed the story actively, more or less up to the present. A lot of the research was from the 60s through the 90s to get that information. I don't know that I could have done it without getting research on the ground, without being able to talk to people. I went down in both situations, Costa Rica and Panama. There were trips with both countries. There were separate trips. There were a number of trips over years where I didn't know what I would find. I was sort of initially just grasping at straws, starting out saying, you know, see where I could find help. But in both cases, it came together and the people I was able to track down played a huge role in shaping the way I thought about things. And most of those oral histories, I have them listed at the back of the book, are conducted in Spanish because it would have been impossible to do otherwise. So did you come to Spanish just specifically for this project? Did you have a knowledge of Spanish before? Because I know when I talk to graduate students, and even if graduate students want to go on and pursue a PhD in US history, I always impress upon them to learn a language. Um, you know, and that's usually, you have to do that for a PhD, obviously. But I tell them to seriously learn a language because that's always going to help them in some way, shape or form later on. So when did you pick up Spanish? Right. So I, I flirted with learning Spanish many times. The first class I think I took was when I was 10. And then a lot of things happened and it sort of stayed on a back burner for a long time. I returned to it at the end of law school. So I was about 25 at the time. And the reason I had done it was because I had gotten deeply involved in what you might call environmental human rights work in Asia. I was working with indigenous communities that were downriver of dams and trying to look at remedies for the damage that the dams had created to their communities. I found the work at a conceptual level really interesting, but I also felt that it would make more sense for me to work in the Western hemisphere than Asia for a variety of different reasons. And I understood that to do that, I was gonna need Spanish. And so I got interested in doing and working more on that, started studying Spanish, pretty much devoted all the free time I had to going down to Latin America. So my bar trip, you get a month after you take the bar, a few months sometime, spent that in Latin America doing homestays. And then eventually I decided that it was going to take a much deeper investment. And so I left my law firm and spent a year in Latin America 
with Span the learning of Spanish, one of the primary goals, I wasn't completely clear where I was going to be on the back end of that, whether I was going to go more towards doing this kind of environmental law in Latin America or transition to writing books. I was sort of on the fence about it when I went down. I was in Latin America for a year working on Spanish, you know, homestays most of the time, taking classes, reading constantly. That's how I got my languages up. And it's also when I inadvertently was traveling on the Pan American Highway. So the interest in the book, which I ne it never would have occurred to me really, was because I was on the road traveling by bus a lot while I was trying to learn Spanish and get to know Latin America. By the time that was over and I was enrolling in the PhD, the role of Spanish in my interest in what I was going to do as a historian was very central. And I, I was very at the forefront of my mind in shaping projects. So I wanted a project that was going to be dependent in certain ways on using Spanish language. And that's how it ended up playing out. So that's interesting. So did this, especially the environmental work, but I'm assuming when you traveled around the world, did, did that make you amenable to transnational history when you, when you went back and did graduate work in history? So it was during that trip that just by instinct, I guess, I kept ending up at some of these sites that have these transnational dimensions to it, particularly with American corporate involvement. So the, there were a couple of them, but they included, as I mentioned before, so Chuki Kamada is this gigantic open pit copper mining hole. It's still there. It's one of the biggest holes in the world. It's one of the biggest copper mines in the world. It's in northern Chile. It's now a Chilean project, but it began as an investment through the Guggenheim family back in the early 20th century. And so the whole story of this massive copper operation in Chile, and it really wasn't just that one. There were others as well. Sarah de Pasco in Peru, similar timeline. All of this was U.S. capital and physically going to the sites and being able to see the scale of it and understand it was what got me sort of thinking about this kind of how is transnational, particularly transnational capitalism tied to American corporations operating abroad. How does that work out? That got me interested in looking at these kind of questions. And I had a very environmental focus at the beginning. And it was in many ways a sourcing limitation, right? There's a lot of great ideas in history that if you don't feel you have the documents, you can only do so much that I started opening my scope of what could be available because I got very concerned on what you could find to sustain the type of research I wanted to do. And that was again why I started veering towards this road building because it's so transnational. I mean, a road is physically running through six countries, connecting them where they're not connected overland otherwise. It's that transformative and it's right at the forefront of US foreign policy. It's kind of remarkable how central this is to U.S. foreign policy. It's, you know, FDR is the direct person pushing for this. It's one of the centerpieces of his good neighbor foreign policy, even though no one really writes about it outside of my work. It continues to be influential. Richard Nixon becomes a huge advocate of it in the 1950s after his goodwill mission on the back end of the Guatemalan coup. I write a lot about that 54 coup in the book and how the road connects to it. During World War II, a lot of people don't know this, but the single biggest project that the U.S. is involved in in Latin America is trying to connect the United States to the Panama Canal, at that point, primarily for security of the canal. And so they changed the road, they call it a pioneer road, because they just want the fastest, cheapest thing. And that ends up being, in many ways, a huge boondoggle. It's a major scandal after World War II, but it keeps on being right at the forefront of what's going on. And again, I didn't know that when I started working on this project. I was just consistently amazed at how significant this quest to link the Americas was essentially from about 1880 to about 1980, this is the through line of so much of inter-American relations. 
Great. So this brings me to today, right? And so, you know, when I was reading your book, and I know some, some reviewers had mentioned this, um, so it wasn't just me, but they felt that your book kind of gives, uh, or at least points to contemporary relations between the U.S. and Latin America. And of course, the thing that comes to my mind, because this is something I'm interested in my own research, is this notion of the history of movement. And certainly the history of a road is a history of movement, right? But mm -hmm. so is the history of a wall right? Because it's stopping movement. <laughs> so um, do you think your book um, can tell us anything about the, the current state of U.S. and Latin American relations in regards to the southern border and this, this building of a wall and, and the politics of, um, of Trump and things like this? I mean, is, is there something here for you? I like to think so. So one thing to realize time-wise, I started working on this book in earnest, sort of, I guess, 2012, 20, my last book came out in 2012, so sort of 2012, 2013. While I was getting underway with it, we had the Cuban thaw under the Obama administration. So what it looked like where foreign policy was going when I was beginning this project was it was actually going to be informing sort of a new moment of deeper integration between the region following those policies. I finished writing it in, if I remember correctly, December 2016. So you can imagine that, the, and, and until the election had happened in 2016, it was very unclear, was the wall going to be a campaign issue or was the wall going to be US foreign policy? And as I'm finishing, it turns out the answer is the wall is going to be U.S. foreign policy. For a while, I really struggled with that because it was, so, it was such a shift. I mean, I certainly didn't see it necessarily coming more than anybody else. And then I came to understand that initially I saw the road as a counterpoint to the Panama Canal. That when you think about infrastructure and the U.S.'s relationship with Latin America, you, most of us until recently, we probably think of the Panama Canal. There's a number of reasons for that. It's hugely important. It's the centerpiece of Teddy Roosevelt's foreign policy. And of course, David McCullough had this huge book back in the day, The Path Between the Seas that came out in the 70s, won the Pulitzer Prize. And for a generation was really important book in shaping how people thought about all of this. So I thought the road was a counterpoint to that infrastructure project. We have this first idea, which is, you know, dividing the seas, uniting, whatever, however you want to see it with the canal and the road was completely shifting things. And I thought that would be enough. And then I came to understand that the road, although still forgotten, is this bridge essentially between big project number one at the start of the 20th century, Panama Canal, and this where we are now, a wall. So we have three major infrastructure projects, a canal, a road, and a wall. And thinking about how these relate in a lot of ways does tell you, and it gives you a bit of an overview of how relations have been playing out between the US and Latin America for the better part of a century. Well, Eric, I want to thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was Dr. Robert Casanello talking with Dr. Eric Rutko about his book, The Longest Line on the Map, The United States, The Pan-American Highway, and The Quest to Link the Americas. For Knight's History Cast, I'm Holly Baker. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future interviews and conversations.